0: Good morning. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are more than just words. You know, our our culture, we're going to be heading into uh, the election this week for our local stuff. And I think our culture uh, very much tends to lean towards being at war with one another. But since the time of the early church, that famous greeting of grace and peace was meant to be more than just words to start a letter, but meant to characterize the blessing of God's people to the world, grace and peace. So, as we step into this week, friends, can we endeavor to be people who, as we navigate difficult topics and issues, be people who are filled with grace and peace? Let's pray together. Jesus, We thank you that you are not a donkey, nor are you an elephant. You are the Lion of Judah. You are the Lamb of God. And we put our hope and our trust solely in you. We ask that you would guide us during this time and in this season, that we would be a light to the world, that we would be uh, those who convey the mercy and the grace of God. We thank you for your rule and your reign, which is everlasting. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we have been in a series called Waiting Well, in which we've been talking about what it looks like to be people who follow Christ and who wait. Because most of our lives are spent in between uh, big moments, where things are promised and where things are delivered, but in between those things, there's a lot of space. And how we wait is very much important when it comes to how we live a life in Jesus. Our first week, we talked about what we're waiting for. We're waiting for God to renew all things, right? We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth and for all things to be set right for justice and peace to reign on the earth. And while we're waiting for that, we live in this weird tension where some of that has been delivered already that when Jesus came to the earth, he began to usher in his kingdom. And we began to see miracles and the spirit breaking through and the spirit of Pentecost and all of us now dwelling within us is the spirit of God in which we see the kingdom break through. And yet... We have yet to see that kingdom fully come to pass, and we live in this tension. Last week, we talked about what we do while we're waiting, and what we do is we listen. We endeavor to hear the voice of God above all of the different voices that are competing for our attention in our culture, right? And this week, we're going to wrestling with this question. How do we keep waiting? How do we endure? We've done a lot of work. In the ideas of waiting it can be really difficult it can be really uncomfortable it can be really painful so how do we keep going Uh, you know as a people in the Western world we don't really like dealing with pain and discomfort if we don't have to right if there is a way to make something make something hurt less we usually take it I know that I take that route a lot of the time I suffer from chronic migraines and I know if I can pop a pill that makes me feel better I'm gonna tend to want to do it I don't like feeling that pain but I think that of our journey of faith as Christians requires that we accept and acknowledge that there are certain things that do not get easier over time. One of those things is waiting. The reality of sitting in the tension of this life and the kingdom to come, that does not get any easier. The baby knows what's up. It's hard. <laughs> it's like gravity, right? Like the weight of Gravity. Does not change on the earth the force of gravity is a constant right we could spend our whole lives hoping for it to get lighter hoping hoping for it to get better but gravity persists instead we grow we start out barely being able to lift our heads like that baby and then we eventually get to the place where we can stand up on two feet and walk and run and jump some of us more than others right so what happened gravity didn't get lighter we grew stronger And even though gravity is persistent, we found a way to endure it. In the same way, in our spiritual lives, there is no way to make waiting easier. Only a way to make it worth it. Waiting only becomes more bearable when our perspectives shifts, when our mindsets change, and when our character grows. And for all of this, we need to rely on the grace and mercy of Jesus and the renewing power of the Holy Spirit within us. So, as all of you sit In this place of worship this morning, what are you waiting for? What is something that you believe God has for you, but you have yet to see it come to pass? For some of you this morning, it might be that you're waiting for a breakthrough in your career. Or maybe you're waiting for that right person to come along whom you wish to marry. Maybe you're waiting to hear from the Lord on whether or not he's actually called you to be celibate. Maybe you're waiting for that physical healing. Maybe you're waiting for a child, for a pregnancy, or for an adoption. Maybe you're waiting for an offer to be accepted on a house. Maybe you're waiting for a burning question you have to be answered. There are a million things that we can spend our lives waiting for while on this side of eternity, and all of it represents this bigger waiting that we all do. All of these inner yearnings and longings point to a bigger picture that we are all waiting for the fruition of the answer to all of these things, and in the middle of all that, it's really hard. (laughs) We've talked about the hope of God's future. We've talked about the importance of listening, the importance of wrestling. And now we're we're getting to this. How do we keep going? How do we endure? Now, these feelings of restlessness, of weariness, of exhaustion that we can experience while we're waiting, this is a shared experience for all of us. St. Augustine famously wrote that we are all restless until we find our rest in thee. There's only one solution to our waiting and that is finding what we're waiting for in jesus always so how do we endure how do we keep going i'm gonna go ahead and give you the answer we remember we remember the word remember is used 231 times in the scriptures we're prone to forget (laughs) so we are able to keep going when we remember that god is good that he fulfills his promises we remember those things waiting won't get easier it just becomes worth it when we remember the truth of God's character and the goodness of his plan. So what do we need to, to, to discover the strength to endure it and to keep going? Today we're going to be looking at a passage out of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 40. Isaiah is in the Old Testament, and this is uh, one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Now prophets, uh, we like to think of them as kind of like fortune tellers. That they kind of look into this crystal ball and they see what's coming. Prophets, when they wrote, did often see what was coming, but they also, most of the time, spoke directly to what was happening right in front of them. They were people who not only called into into, uh, reminders what was happening in God's future for us, but also what was happening right now. They reminded Israel to be faithful to the covenant. They often called them to repentance prophets were not popular in their own culture. They were often ignored, even ridiculed, and persecuted, right? So this section of Isaiah, chapter 40, was written circa 50, uh, 550 BC by the second author of Isaiah, the Deuter- what we call the Deutero-Isaiah. Now, Let me explain this. So uh, although it's debated in the academic community a bit, a lot of uh, scholars agree that Isaiah was uh, uh, likely written by more than just one author, by multiple authors. And uh, Deutero-Isaiah, he's known as the prophet of the exile. He's the prophet of consolation. He's the one writing during the time of the Babylonian exile. So the Hebrews, they're in the midst of what is really a refugee crisis. They've been stripped of their culture, and they're surrounded by people who worship pagan gods and who take every opportunity to rub it in the Israelites' faces. Our God beat up your God. What are you going to do about it? This is a generation of people who are picking up the pieces of a devastating defeat. They've literally lost everything that they hold dear. They've lost their home. They've lost their lands. They've lost their people's way of life. They've lost their culture. They've lost their freedom to worship God. They've lost everything. And they're looking at the promises of God, and they're like, uh, what's going on? Because you promised our father Abraham that you were going to make his descendants outnumber the grains of sand on the beach. Remember that? You told us that we were going to be able to look at the stars in the same way that we wouldn't be able to count the stars. We'd not be able to count how many people come to worship you. You remember that, that you were going to prosper us and protect us and, 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 and expand our people? What happened? Look at where we are. We've lost everything. The cultural messages that the second Isaiah is addressing, the feelings that are coming up in the culture, God no longer loves Israel. God is punishing Israel. God is unable to protect Israel. God no longer cares for us. That's what they're wrestling with in this time. And perhaps we can see ourselves reflected in these assumptions that the Israelites are making. Perhaps we live in moments where we say, you know what? Based on the available available evidence, maybe God actually doesn't care. Maybe he's not actually fulfilling his promises. Maybe he's actually full of it. And we have these feelings as if God has abandoned us, right? You know, there once lived this uh, Romanian-born Jew named Laureate Eli Weissel, And he was a teenager during the time of the Holocaust. And he was imprisoned in Auschwitz. He survived... And he was eventually liberated, and he went on to become a professor and an author and an an activist and a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. After the war, a story began to circulate of these three rabbis, these Jewish teachers, who were in Auschwitz, and they put God on trial. And they found him guilty of indifference. But in the story, they found him guilty of indifference and then went on to pray. Now, for a long time, this story was considered apocryphal. But at a Holocaust educational trust event in London, Weissel sent the record straight and he said, I was there when we put God on trial. To say this is understandable is far from accurate. I don't think I'll ever be able to truly understand the horrors of the Holocaust and that kind of persecution um, that would probably call uh, into question my faith in God. But what I find most striking about this story is that they found God guilty of indifference, but they went on to pray to him anyway. I think that God is fully capable of handling our questions and our doubts. The challenge for us is through the power of the Spirit within us to be willing to extend trust to God even when it appears to us that he is not fulfilling his promises. And this is what the prophet is encouraging people to do in the midst of this hopeless oppression. He's writing saying, look, I know, I know, it looks bad, but don't lose heart. Remember, God will always be true to his promises because he always has been. Now, at the risk of beating a dead horse here at Red Hills Church, we have to remember that faith is not the absence of doubt, rather it is the audacity of trust. Think about it. When God calls Moses, right, to return to Egypt in order that he might set the Hebrews free from Egyptian oppression and slavery, Moses presents a ton of questions and doubts, right? Can you, look, like, I, I, I can't speak well. I have all these problems. I, and with every single question and hesitation that he provides, what does God do? He patiently answers each and every one. He's like, you know what? I'll even give you some magic tricks that you can show to prove that I'm on your side. God only gets mad God only shows anger when Moses says what? Send someone else. Look, God can work with your doubts. He can work with your fears and your anxieties. He can accomplish great things in and through you despite the feelings that you have as long as you put your trust in him. We don't have to get it. We don't have to understand. We don't need to have it figured out. We just need to trust that God is who he says he is. Now, that might sound like a cop-out answer. (laughs) But the truth is, we all put our blind faith and trust in something. Now, blind's not right. There's plenty of evidence to prove or to to contribute to the idea that when we put our faith in God, it is not in vain and it is maybe one of the most likely ways that we can find peace. However, we do put our faith in something, no matter what it is. Whether it's agnosticism or Buddhism or Christianity, we all have faith in something. Trust in something that is beyond our comprehension, that goes beyond us. And today we make a case that the best place to put that trust is probably in Jesus. So, the Jews in 550 BC, they're facing this hopeless oppression during the Babylonian exile. The prophet of consolation is, is, is helping the people of Israel, and consequently us, to remember the character of God. Alright, chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Okay, so verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, that my right is disregarded by my God? Perhaps uh, there are some of us that feel that we are not receiving justice, that justice is being denied to us from the Lord. And that's really what this verse is stating. My right has been denied to me. Paul Hansen, he said this, Second to Isaiah is far from being a detached analyst. Strove passionately for the preservation of the community from cynicism and despair within the conviction that life is not driven by arbitrary forces, but is guided by a loving God who remains true to a universal plan for justice. Because sometimes it's difficult to accept that God is contending for justice. It's just that his justice is often so much more robust and more beautiful than we are prepared to understand or accept. But he is always working towards justice, even if it doesn't look like it. His justice often comes in a way that is different from the way we would want justice. His justice comes through self-sacrifice. And that is a path far less traveled. In verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is the centerpiece of God-given peace, the gift of perspective. (laughs) He is God. He is good. He is who he says he is. And he is mysterious beyond our comprehension. It will be impossible for us to discover peace in this life if we are unable to accept this about God. That he is just and good and beyond our comprehension. If he wasn't beyond our comprehension, he would not be a very good God. And this language echoes that of Job. Remember Job? Job, probably the oldest written book in the Old Testament, is somebody who lost everything that a person can lose. Everything. He lost his family he lost his children he lost his wealth he lost his home he lost his health he was broken down to the very bottom of what it is to survive right he lost everything and all of job's friends spend most of the book exhausting the world's wisdom on him trying to determine exactly what happened to get him to this place and no answer is satisfactory and job finally has it out with god and he says why Why would you do this to me? And what God basically says is, Job, look. Look up. You see the vast array of creation? Do you see how unknowable it all is? Guess what? I keep all of that running. In fact, I was there and spoke it into existence. It is too big, my friend. It is too big for you to understand So you're going to have to trust me. That's how God responds to Job. We have to accept that sometimes there are not going to be satisfactory answers to our questions. And we have to be willing to trust despite those questions. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint and he strengthens the powerless. Now notice, he gives us strength, not necessarily to overcome our circumstances, how many of you know that 99% of the things that happen in the world are completely outside of your control? 2020 did a lot to teach me that. That there's a lot that happens in the world that I have very little or no say in. What happens in the world around us is not necessarily what we can control. We can't necessarily always change our circumstances. What we are given is the ability to endure those things. What we are given is the capacity to keep going amidst the circumstances. Not to remove our circumstances, but to make them more bearable. And think about this life-giving truth to those who are being oppressed like the Jews. Because they had tried everything they could to try to secure safe circumstances for their people. And all of it failed. That was my phone. Oh my goodness, how embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Lane. All right. All right. <laughs> All right, next, (laughs) verse 30. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. Okay, so here's the thing. The best of us, the best of us, we will fail in our own power. We will. We may be able to control, to muscle our way through, to white-knuckle our way to control for a moment, but it won't last. It's not sustainable. None of us are strong enough to conquer all the evils in the world, to put to rest death and evil, which is why we need Jesus. Verse 31. Verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So this is it right here. This is where we discover that life doesn't let up. It's like gravity. It keeps coming. So the solution is not to try to escape gravity, but to become those who can bear the weight. When we wait... With the perspective that chooses to remember the character of God, then we discover that we can keep going no matter what the circumstances is, because we know that what we're waiting for is worth it. But in order to find that strength, in order to discover that ability to endure, we need to pick up the discipline of dying to ourselves. That's important. Dying to our own need to control And to find answers. And when we lie down, when we lay down our lives in keeping with the example of Christ, we pick up a strength in keeping with the power of Christ, that we can do all things through Him who gives us strength. Paul writes in 2 Timothy I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day and not only to me but to all who have longed for his appearing. There is so much language of faith that is about endurance, about running the race. Remember that it was accepted in the days of the early church that mature Christians were people that had endured a lot of hardship because of their faith. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus this is the only way it works it's the only way it works is we have to keep our eyes fixed on jesus hansen said so long as the human heart harbors other ultimate loyalties besides god it is lost in a sea of chaos this formula only works if you trust in jesus that if you really believe he is who he says he is so the key to continue to enduring is trust and the thing that usually comes between me and trust is anxiety Anxiety is something that we have to war against all the time that's trying to rob us of trust. It's about worrying about things that are outside of our control, right? Things that are behind me, things that are in front of me that I have no control over what happens. My anxiety will manifest when I try to control those things. Now, human emotions, human emotions are not innately bad. Jesus was a man who was depicted having lots of emotions. The shortest passage in the Bible was, Jesus wept. The translators found that verse so important that they gave it its own number. Feeling things is not innately wrong. They actually reveal to us the humanity that God has given to us. Feelings can be really beautiful. To quote one of my favorite superheroes, what is grief but not love persevering? All of these things, belonging, intimacy, they they can all be really good until they're mangled into something that they're not, right? When we experience God-given feelings, there's always the the temptation to experience them in light of half-truths and deception. Whenever Jesus experienced his emotions, he did it in the light of the truth of who he was and who God was. But when love is taken beyond its design, it distorts into fear, right? This is when we move from protectiveness to possessiveness, From indignation to resentfulness, from cooperation into codependence, from forgiveness into record keeping, right? It gets distorted into things that are not healthy. When we try to meet our needs in ways that God never intended, we are fueled by our fear rather than by his love, right? So what are our basic needs, right? If we go back to our summer series, the three most core basic human needs are identity, who am I, my belonging, whose am I? and my purpose why am I here (laughs) these big questions they always require that we have to wait faithfully in order to be seen the answer and that time of waiting can be full of emotions and feelings when will I find someone to be my spouse who can I trust to be my closest friends what career will I find myself in where will I live What experiences will I never get to have? When will someone notice my gifts and abilities? When will I discover my purpose here? And when we look in the midst of those questions to other things to give us answers, we ultimately find them unsatisfied because we are restless until we find our rest in God. So when we experience these strong feelings in the middle of waiting, what are we to do? Well, we have three responses that we can potentially give to our emotions. One is we can ignore and avoid our feelings. We can ignore and avoid them, either by stoicism, detachment, or by cynicism, pessimism, right? So, stoicism says, you know what, my feelings are too powerful, so I'm going to sideline them, or I'm going to stuff them. And perhaps this seems easier, right? How many of you have seen Revenge of the Sith? Star Wars, Episode 3, yeah? Okay, so if you haven't seen it, Anakin Skywalker starts having these visions that his Uh, wife is going to die a terrible death and so he goes to master yoda for counsel and what does no yoda tell him he says train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose anakin deeply loved his wife and yoda was basically telling him not to care this is stoicism how many of you have ever felt so angry before that you're like you know what i'm tired of being angry i'm just i'm just done (laughs) right i'm not angry not, ang- not angry anymore. I'm just done. We disengage. We remove ourselves from the equation of our own lives. And that can feel easier than actually having to feel what I feel. But here's the problem with that. There is always a meaning behind your feelings. So perhaps the pathway to resolving the tensions in your heart is not to step back, but actually to lean in. You guys heard of Spock before from Star Trek? Yes? You're getting a Star Wars and a Star Trek reference in the same sermon. There you go. Spock is a Vulcan. The Vulcans want to purge all emotions. He's also half human. And he went on a journey where he was about to embrace the purging of all of his emotions to embrace pure logic, but he actually chooses, he chooses to embrace his friends. To quote Ambassador Spock, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. I'm telling you, you're missing out. Watch some Star Trek. It's good. We can detach. We can remove all meaning and affection from our hearts. And that might help us survive, but will it help us flourish? I don't know if that's the answer. Okay, the second option is we can bow to or trust in our feelings. This means that we are to be controlled by our feelings. Oh, it feels like the world is falling apart, so it must be, right? Anxiety assumes the worst of a situation. This person got angry with me, so they must hate me. So I must be unworthy. So we draw these conclusions based off of our feelings, which may or may not be accurate, right? We can often feel like we're in love with someone, but that feeling of love starts to seem pretty worthless if there's no evidence of faithfulness, right? Otherwise, I can feel like I'm in love with someone other than someone I've committed my life to in marriage, but true love would show itself to be faithful. I may feel like beating someone up or killing someone, When I get angry, but that usually makes things worse and it's typically illegal, right? Our feelings can be misleading. So rather than obeying whatever our feelings tell us to do, because that's a life of chaos, isn't it? God is not a God of chaos. All right, so we can ignore our feelings. We can give in to them or we can listen to them and invite God into them. We can listen to them and invite God into them. Okay, God, I'm feeling angry. Why is this? What misconceptions might I be entertaining? What am I grieving or protecting? What lies am I believing about myself or about the world? God, what is your truth? Here's how things feel. Here's the conclusion that I'm drawing based on those feelings. Would you tell me about your reality? When we move towards a shift in perspective from what feels like it's true to what is actually true, this is when we discover Peace. If we can align our perspective with the truth of God's reality, then we can have peace. Because God is not a God of chaos and meaninglessness. He's a God of order and purpose. In the same way that the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos of the waters in Genesis, that Spirit of God is alive in you, hovering over the chaos of your heart and your mind. And he wants to bring it to order. He wants to bring it to purpose. Paul writes in Philippians, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through Christ who gives me strength. Paul says, because I know Jesus, there is nothing that can come my way that I can't handle because I know that no matter what I'm going through, there is a reason that I can endure because he is always fulfilling his promises. Even when it looks like he's not, he is. A big example of this is the cross. I'm going to invite the worship worship team to come up while we take communion. Think about it. When Jesus died his death in crucifixion on the cross, to everyone who followed him, it appeared like we lost They were expecting the deliverance of God's people out of the hands of Roman oppression, and then the Romans executed him in the most humiliating way possible. It looked like we lost. Little did we know that Christ was preparing a victory more epic than we could possibly imagine. Not just that he would deliver one people group from one government, but he'd deliver all of humanity from the sin of the world. That Saturday, between when he was crucified and when he rose again, was a period of waiting where they didn't understand God's plan. They didn't see how it was working out, but they had a choice in whether or not they'd trust that he is who he says he is and that he'd do what he said he'd do. We have that opportunity now. All of you, all of us, we're waiting for the big things and the little things. We have a choice. Do we continue to trust that Christ is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he'll do? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me.